If you have a Bible, how about if you open it up to Acts chapter 3? If you didn't bring one with you today, you'll find them in the rack in front of you if you want to follow along there. And if you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back. Grab one when you leave today. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. And uh, there'll be, it'll be on the screen as well, so you can follow along that way. We left off last week with Acts 3.16, and here's the background. Um, a man who was disabled, born disabled, he was uh, crippled from birth, um, encountered Peter and John. Peter and John are going into the temple. They talked with him, and then there was healing that took place, complete healing. And as a result, Peter said this in Acts 3.16, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man. We're left with a question this morning. Is the name of Jesus as strong in 2015 as it was in 33 A.D.? Some of you believe that it is, absolutely, that it's as strong today as it was then, that it doesn't wear out, it doesn't diminish. Many here who are believers in Jesus know that Scripture calls you a new creation, that something has taken place because Jesus' name is so powerful and what He did for us, because it is so real and true, that we have become literally a new creation Matter of fact, that's the way Scripture says it is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Sounds like you can get a fresh new start in Jesus Christ. Meaning your past, it could be in your past. Your past sins. They don't have to wear you down and weigh you down. Jesus can take those away. That's what Peter's trying to help this crowd understand this crowd who doesn't really understand that they have sin when Peter's talking to them in Acts chapter 3. Let's go where we left off last week with verse 16. We'll start out with verse 17 this morning. It says this, Acts 3.17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. And he's talking about the fact that they were part of the crowd who crucified Jesus, that called out for Jesus to be crucified. I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. When he says, I know that you acted in ignorance, he's not saying they're stupid. We use that word in the English language today to indicate somebody who's ignorant as as stupid. That is not the way the New Testament refers to this particular word. He's not saying they're dumb and dumber. He's saying there's something much bigger here that they didn't fully comprehend. In the big picture, what's really being said here is that no one in that crowd or in this crowd this morning is beyond the reach of God's grace. What Peter's really doing here is focusing on the blindness component. The fact that these individuals can't really understand what was going on. So it's important that we focus on it for just a moment. Here's this word ignorant from the Bible. You see it on the screen in the Greek language, and it has a very specific meaning. I put it in your notes this morning that are in your bulletin as well, but here's what it really means. It means to not know by implication to ignore. And specifically, it says through disinclination, and here's what that means. I'm not inclined to pay attention to it. Even though the evidence is in front of me, I'm just not that interested. Or it doesn't fit with my preconceived idea. So what he's telling them is they didn't really understand what was going on. That makes sense when you attach that to what Jesus said from the cross. Now think about this moment. Jesus has the crown of thorns on his head. He's been whipped 
within an inch of his life, most people die just from the beating. He's on the cross, and he cries out, Father, forgive them. But he doesn't stop short there. He says this, Father, forgive them in Luke 23, 24, for they do not know what they are doing. Exact same concept that Peter's speaking about here. Now, we know they know they're carrying out a crucifixion. When Jesus says that, it's obvious they know what they're doing. Roman soldiers, the crowd that's gathered, they're carrying out a crucifixion physically. So he can't be specifically speaking of the physical action here. Rather, what's going on is what's driving the action. Paul spoke to this very same issue in 1 Corinthians 2. He said it this way, If they had understood, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But they didn't understand, didn't fully comprehend. So let's come down from the big 30,000 foot view and, and zoom down in as to why this could happen. How does that happen for people to become ignorant of the things of Christ? Well, 2 Corinthians 4 speaks to it specifically. It says this, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, meaning Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel. So let's go back up to the 30,000-foot view again, the big picture. Peter's helping them to understand Forgiveness is available even though they acted in ignorance, even though they're willingly blind to everything that's in front of them. Why do I say willingly blind? Because the evidence is like a billboard. Jesus has been healing people, raising people from the dead. He himself was resurrected from the dead. All the evidence points to the fact that he is the Messiah. Yet, because they so badly wanted their own way, They're willing to crucify the Lord of glory. So here's the truth. The ignorance is absolutely inexcusable. It cannot be excused. Jesus is the Messiah, yet none of them are beyond the reach of God's grace. That's why Peter's saying, I know you acted in ignorance. If you will repent, you can get right with God. Now, we'll come back to that thought of repentance in just a moment. That's telling us that God's grace is reaching beyond, even beyond the leaders who called for the crucifixion, even to that crowd, even the ones who have no excuse. And Peter's just laid down the mercy card. On their behalf, rejection did not alter God's plan. Do you notice how he ended verse 18? He says, literally, God announced this beforehand to all the prophets, meaning it didn't surprise God. So that should tell us this morning, God used the actions of evil men to accomplish His purposes. That should help us to understand what's going on today in our world when we seem to see evil rampant. God can use the actions of evil people to accomplish His purposes. That's what Acts 2.23 is all about. God knew these things were going to happen. So let me sum up those first two verses, uh, and I'm going to do it through a quote. D.A. Carson really summed it up really well, so I wanted you to see his quote, and here it is on the screen. Ignorance did not place them beyond the need of repentance, but neither did their direct involvement in Jesus' condemnation place them beyond redemption's reach. Love that. It seems like if anybody would have been beyond redemption's reach, it would be those who nailed Jesus to the cross. But even that crowd is not beyond God's reach. So now, once you hear the truth, you got to do something with the truth. 
They're hearing the truth. You've got to do something with it. What's about to come next, verses 19 and 20, we're going to camp out there for just a minute because it is a theological mouthful. I don't know if you've ever read it that way before. Maybe this is the first time you've ever seen it, but I want you to understand what's being said here. Verse 19, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, you've heard me use this word repent before if you've been here at New Hope any length of time. The the Greek meaning behind it literally means, literal meaning, is to change your mind or your purpose. But I want you to know that repent goes way, way, way beyond an intellectual decision. There's something far beyond that. It is a change of mind, but the change of mind results in a change of behavior. That's what we call momentum, truth momentum. It's a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. So let's frame it this way. Is it possible in your life or in someone's life to have sorrow for sinful activity without repentance? It is, if you're wondering. It is possible to have sorrow for sin without repentance. Let me explain that to you. False sorrow is merely regret. And it sounds like this. I can't believe I got caught. Okay? You heard that before, right? That would be false regret. Remorse is even a brother to that. And it sounds like this. I feel absolutely terrible for what I did. But that too is also fleeting because that's a feeling. And the problem with feelings is they tend to fade away. So there can be false sorrow for sin without true repentance. But I want you to understand, I'm going to use a parable to illustrate this for you. When truth powers the decision, momentum will follow. When truth powers the decision, momentum will follow. And Jesus used a parable to illustrate that. If you're not familiar with that word, parable is simply another word in the Bible for story. So Jesus told a story about a farmer who had two sons that went through this very process. Let me show it to you on the screen. It's a little bit longer verse, but Matthew 21, 21, 28 explains it. It says this, a man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir. And he did not go. And he came to the second son and said the, same th- said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not. Yet he afterward regretted it and went. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the latter. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. Kind of harsh in that last statement, right? We're not going to go into that last sentence right now. But what I want you to see coming out of the text, he's speaking specifically to a group of religious leaders there in that moment. But what I want you to see out of the text here is, do you notice that the second son not only changed his mind, but followed the decision with a change of behavior? See, that's the nature of true repentance, That's a biblical definition of what repentance looks like. Regret for sin can't be confused with genuine repentance. Here's why. Judas regretted what he did. The Bible says that when Judas betrayed Jesus and he saw the crucifixion and he understood what was going on, he felt remorse, but he didn't repent. And so he went out and hung himself. So here's a question for us. Would God have forgiven Judas if he had truly repented? 
Absolutely. That's the nature of our God. We understand from the Bible one really strong motivation to repent, final judgment. Because God says there's a warning here. Let me, let me show you the warning. Acts 17. We'll get to this in a few weeks in the book of Acts, but Paul explains it this way, or Luke explains it this way. God, having overlooked the times of ignorance, is God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. See, the reality of the coming judgment alone causes any rational person to say, man, I want to get right with God. So let's just be really clear about what repentance is before we move forward. True repentance is admitting what God says is true. And because it's true, i got to change my direction. And that results in a change of behavior. Here's a really simple one-sentence way to say it. Repentance is a change of mind resulting in a change of behavior. Repentance is a change of mind which results in a change of behavior. Now, there's three promises that come to those who repent. Very specifically, God says this, He will forgive, judgment will be avoided, and blessing will be realized. Uh, This is beautiful in verse 19 that it says, As a result of repentance, your sins will be wiped away. Peter's willing to do something here that most people are afraid of doing. Peter's willing to call out in the first century that we have to be willing to do the exact same thing that individuals have sin in their life, no matter how socially unacceptable it is. Now think about the crowd that Peter's talking to. He's in the temple. People are gathered there to worship God. They're sacrificing to God, and yet he's willing to say to them, you've got sin in your life, and you've got to repent, and you've got to turn to Jesus. So no matter how socially unacceptable it is, even offensive, we've got to be willing to declare it. Did you know that there's an offense to the gospel? God's word says that the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, is actually offensive to people. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. If you didn't know, if you're not a Jew this morning, you're a Gentile, okay? There's only two kinds. There's only Jews and Gentiles in the Bible. It's not a demeaning thing. It's just a title for those who are not born Jewish. Now, John and Peter do not withhold the truth, so I'm not going to withhold the truth this morning myself either. Sin is real. You have sin in your life, and it has to be dealt with. It's the one thing this morning that can separate you from eternal life with God. Peter's not afraid to say it in the first century. I'm not afraid to say it in 2015. If you live your life apart from God and reject the fact that Jesus Christ can provide you with a relationship with God, you are in danger of the fires of hell this morning. I have to say it straight up. I know it's hard to heal here, but we're dealing with eternal destiny here. It doesn't get any more serious than heaven and hell. That's the truth of Scripture. It's what it's all about that we would get right with God. So he uses this absolutely beautiful word. Another Greek word, your third one, if you've been keeping track this morning, there's only four of them. But here's the word, and I'm going to put it on the screen for you. When he says wipe away, it does mean that, but it goes beyond that. It means to obliterate that very thing that has held you. So when he says he will wipe away your sins, it's important that we understand that. Here's the picture. 
in the first century, when they used ink, ink did not have acid in it. And so therefore, it lacked the ability to bite into the vellum or the papyrus, whatever they were writing on. The ink had to sit in the sunlight until it dried. Or they would hold it over a flame, trying to enhance the drying process. So ink was easily smudged. Now, that's the downside of it, that ink had to sit out on a page until the air temperature would dry it. But the upside of it was, you could pick up a wet sponge and wipe that ink completely off this page, and there would be no trace of it. This word, ex elifo, is literally talking about obliterating something off the page. So God uses this exact same word in a beautiful passage in Colossians 2.14 when he's talking about what Jesus did for us. Look at the passage. Jesus, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. See, what God does is far more than just scratch out your sins. It's not as though there's a piece of paper somewhere in eternity and you've got all the list of all the wrong things that you've done and God got out a pencil and just started scratching lines through it. What this passage is telling us is that God has literally wiped them away completely. And here's the cool thing. He remembers them no more. How great is that? The omniscient God who doesn't miss any details who knows everything, says, I will not remember your sin. I can back that up from the Bible. Isaiah 43, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. How cool is that? I don't know when the last time you realized that truth was something that you vocalized, but if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, I invite you to say along with me that my sin is gone. And we're going to do that together as a group. If you want to, one, two, three. My sin is gone. That's the truth of the Bible. Gone beyond the possibility of recall. It's not as though there's this white dry erase board and somebody has taken an eraser and wiped away your sins, but you can still see a shadow of it on there. No, God got the bleach out. God got the cleanser out and completely wiped it off the dry erase board. It's not there anymore. So as a result for you and I, Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation. Look at it very clearly. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Peter wants them to get. So just so we're really clear before we move forward here, there's only one way to receive that kind of forgiveness. Only one way for your past sins, your present sin, and your future sin to be wiped away, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 19 very clearly says something else, though, that is very intriguing to us. And this is where the theological depth comes from in this passage. Verse 19 says, in order that times of refreshing may come. What's he talking about there? Yeah, it sounds good on the surface to say, I'm going to be refreshed as a result of my sins going away. But there's something much deeper that's being stated here. Repentance not only brings forgiveness, but did you know that repentance also brings corporate national restoration? That's what Peter's speaking to here. Peter is announcing to them what to expect. He said, if you repent, if you return to Jesus, there's a promise. 
For the individual, that your sins will be forgiven. But for the nation, now remember, he's speaking to Israel at this point. For the nation, there will be times of spiritual refreshing. So here's what Peter's just done. He's calling for national repentance. The very people who have just called for Jesus to be killed on the cross. They've rejected their Messiah. He's saying, you've got to turn back from that. So here's his declaration. If the nation will repent... If the nation will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messiah will return and establish his promised kingdom. But you and I know history, and we know that the nation of Israel does not repent. And so God expands the kingdom by taking it to the Gentiles and to the Samaritans, moving it out across Europe into the known world. But what does this mean, this times of refreshing? Because it obviously hasn't happened yet. When is this time of refreshing, and what does that look like? Well, understand from a biblical view, the people, the ancients, had waited for thousands of years for the Messiah to come, that the Messiah would reign on earth, and he would set up what is known as the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign on planet earth. Israel had waited generations for that. Here's Peter's point. It's impossible to have the kingdom without the king, You can't have the kingdom without the king. Jesus is the king. Oh, what is this millennial kingdom thing? There's a time coming here on planet earth after the return of Jesus at the second coming when a 1,000-year reign of Jesus literally as King Jesus on planet earth will be established. The ancients wrote about that period of time. Isaiah wrote about this in chapter 11. Let me just give you a picture so you get a glimpse in your mind of what that time will be like because you will experience it as a believer in Jesus. It says this, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox." And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. That future kingdom has obviously not happened. No one has seen a time like that. It hasn't existed since the time of the Garden of Eden. But because of the curse on this earth, We don't know those kind of things. So look very specifically at the end of the verse when it says that comes from the presence of the Lord. You know what that tells us? That all the Mideast peace talks that we participate in and all the anti-terrorism summits that take place, they don't produce anything because it comes from God. It comes from the presence of the Lord. It's a good thing to pursue peace. But we shouldn't expect that we're going to see it on planet earth in the way that the Bible describes it until the king comes again. So Peter puts a really big and on verse 20. He says, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Now you just heard me say there can't be a kingdom without a king Peter's just made a huge declaration in verse 20. He says that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. Now, immediately you're going to think, oh, wait, we just learned in the last couple weeks that Jesus only was crucified 50 days before this. 
Why would Peter say that now that he may send Jesus the Christ? Obviously, he's talking about the second coming. He's talking about the nation of Israel returning. So in context, Peter's talking to Israel who has rejected Jesus as a nation. So here's the truth of verse 20. The second coming of Jesus will not happen, will not happen again until Israel returns to Jesus. It requires a return of the verdict by which the nation rejected him. So if you're watching for the second coming, you've got to watch for the repentance of Israel. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 23, from now on you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Meaning Jesus will not come until Israel acknowledges him as Messiah. Now right now you might be thinking, yeah, like when is that going to happen? Because, man, I don't see that. Well, seven years of tribulation has an amazing ability to change people's hearts. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. The seven years of tribulation is about turning the world towards Jesus to recognize Him as who He is. So in verse 21, He lays this theological bombshell down. And He says, so Jesus is received up into heaven until the period of the restoration of all things. Did you know that all things on planet earth will be restored to their original perfection as in the Garden of Eden? We're told that. But right now, Paul gives us a reality check. In Romans, he tells us what we're really dealing with here on this planet. It says this in Romans 8.19, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans. What does that look like? Earthquakes, hurricanes, Ebola, rampant disease. The whole creation groans, waiting for the freedom, waiting for the delivery from this slavery. The physical curse has to be reversed. And when it is, it will be the ultimate green movement on planet Earth. Joy, peace, holiness, comfort, justice, prosperity, freedom from oppression. And Peter's point is, these things are not new. These are the things that the holy prophets spoke about in the ancient times. That's why he said that in verse 21. So here he comes to this ending. We're going to start landing this plane. We see in verse 22, he gives a practical example. And his example is, Moses said these things. Look with me on the screen at this. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, to him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Verse 23, pay very close attention to that. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. Now, Peter's pretty smart. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's a fisherman by trade. But we're told the Holy Spirit came upon him with power. And he recognizes the crowd that he's speaking to. And he knows that no one expects Jews to hear them unless they're willing to say where do they stand regarding the great leaders of the past. 
Abraham, Moses, David. So he begins invoking some of their names. For us in our political world, it's like saying Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln. You listen to political speeches and they're always invoking the names of those individuals to make clear where do they stand. That's exactly what Peter's doing. And so he uses Moses to say, Moses warned you about this. Moses said you would be utterly destroyed if you rejected Jesus. It's the very situation that Peter's hearers find themselves in. So here's where we come into this ending. Verse 25, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant, meaning Jesus, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And here's his reminder for them. He's ending chapter 3. And he says, you are privileged. You're the sons of the prophets. But you've sinned against a flood of light. God has made himself evident through Jesus. So Peter has to end with hope. In spite of rejecting Jesus, you're still heirs of the covenant. You're still sons of the covenant. The blessing is still available to you if you will act on it. Now, he's ended what he has to say to them. And as always is the case, the crowd lands on two sides. It's not unanimously accepted. Before he can even finish, the authorities arrive and they're about to throw him in prison. We're just going to read these couple verses because we're going to come back to them next week. But verse 1 in chapter 4 says this, As they were speaking to the people... The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the authorities are ticked. We can't have you talking about Jesus and resurrection. The apostles are proclaiming Jesus, so it's a major irritation point for them. And their response is this, verse 3, and they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So let's bring this plane down onto the runway. Peter and John have just addressed this huge crowd, and it's produced two completely opposite results. 2,000 more people are added to the church on top of the 3,000 that were already in. Now we see a total of 5,000, and that's just mentioning the men. But the leaders on the opposite side are continuing to reject Jesus. They're continuing to oppose. And so the persecution is about to begin. The persecution of the church starts right here. Because of instead of honestly examining the evidence for what it is, the leaders obstruct it. But you can't silence the truth, can you, church? The arrival of the guards cannot prevent 2,000 people from trusting Jesus. Truth has been unleashed. And where truth is unleashed in response, there's momentum. So what you'll see next week is Peter and John are thrown in prison. They're incarcerated overnight. The same Sanhedrin that put Jesus on the cross and executed Jesus is about to judge Peter and John. But by throwing truth in prison doesn't silence truth, does it? can't silence truth. You cannot stop the momentum truth brings. So verse 4 said, many believed about 5,000 now are making up the church. That's the last time you'll ever see in the book of Acts a mention of a number. 
It, it, the church begins to explode so quickly, they lose count. They can't keep track of all the people who are coming into the kingdom. Persecution always leads to the expansion of the church. Let me come back to the very first question I asked about a half hour ago. Is the name of Jesus as powerful in 2015 as it was in 33 AD? Can you still see lives change the way that they did, or does it diminish over time? Many people believe that it's diminished. It was for the ancients. But I stand in an auditorium full of people who recognize the power of Jesus' name is as powerful in 2015 as it was in 33 AD, because what you have recognized is that the same God who declared in the first century, repent and I will obliterate your sins, have acted on that. And so this morning you can say, I'm a new creation. My sins are gone. So I want to send you out the door with five things you should take away from this text very, very quickly. And I put them in your notes. You're just going to see the headlines form up on the, on the screen. But these are important components coming out of this teaching. First of all, number one, we should remember God is incredibly long-suffering. Think about how many times the nation of Israel rejected Jesus over and over, and God kept bringing back opportunity to them. What that tells me, church, is that I should reflect that same thing. If you don't know what long-suffering is, it means patient. God is incredibly patient. You've got friends, you've got family, you've got coworkers who you wish could see and understand these things, and they seem to operate as though they're blind to this. Just remember, our God is incredibly patient. Number two, true witnessing involves bad news. And by that I mean people have to be told that they have sin in their life. That's the bad news. We're sinners in need of a Savior. Christians recognize that. Non-Christians haven't yet dealt with that. So true witnessing involves bad news because sin and guilt are a reality and there can be no true faith in Christ unless first there's a repentance for that sin. Number three, the way to reach the masses is to help the individual. I love the example of Peter and John. They stop with the disabled guy at the gate and deal with the individual. And what does God give them? An opportunity to talk to thousands because they were faithful. That's just like Jesus. These guys studied well. That's exactly what Jesus did. They're very true disciples. Here's number four. Wherever God is on the move, you can expect Satan's going to show up. And Satan is going to show up to oppose. Just remember that. Don't let that stop you. Just be aware. You face opposition, it's because Satan doesn't like what you're doing on behalf of the kingdom. But don't let it stop you. And here's the fifth one. The name of Jesus Christ has power, church. Boldly proclaim it. Don't hold back. It is the name of Jesus to which every knee will bow one day. The question is, will they bow willingly or unwillingly? Because God says everyone's going to bow one day. Even Satan in hell will bow. Let me pray for us about this boldness issue. Would you join me in that? Father, we recognize the truth about what we're about to declare through song is that you are so beyond our understanding. We could barely scratch the surface to begin to grasp how great you are, how patient you are, 
how merciful you are. Father, I I thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning and see what you are trying to make so plain and so evident for the world who's wondering why do we have all this turmoil? That the turmoil can cease with the return of the king. I thank you for an auditorium full of people who have recognized that truth. So we patiently wait for your return. But in the meantime, you've left us here as ambassadors on this planet to represent you well, to deal with the disabled people at the gate, to deal with the crowds who are blind, to deal with the multitudes of leaders who will willingly reject you. God, help us to be ever faithful, ever determined, and ever bold to name the name of Jesus. Whether it's in the workplace, or it's in the hallways of the school, or it's in our own home. Father, make us bold, bolder than we've ever known before. Because of Jesus, because he washed away our sins. Father, I ask that you would translate what we're about to sing here in this last song into praise and glory and honor because you are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' name God's people declared, Amen.